each meaningless thought The shell appears strong, but the inside is right It's time to be stirred, the time is now The winds have changed, read the signs No time to hide, the winds have changed Millennia ago from the little cave on the tiny island of Podmos in the Aegean Sea, the heavens opened. Since then, the world has been fascinated by the cosmic upheaval brewing on the horizon of history. The upheaval is now upon us. It is within us. To some degree, it always has been. But there has been a sudden and violent shift in the affairs of the world. The winds have changed. Heaven will not be silent. Let's now join Father Anthony Bush, pastor of St. Stanislaus Koska, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy in Chicago, and author of A Mother's Plea, For the Winds Have Changed. Together we can pave the way for a hopeful response to the signs of our times. Hey, welcome everyone. God bless you for tuning into the Winds of Change. So it's Brain Wrinkling Wednesday with Father Coys here once again. And I... I'm sure I'll wrinkle your brain because it, my my brain is wrinkled. I'm trying to uh, trying to figure out um, how to save the world. Does that wrinkle your brain? And as a believer in Almighty God, and as a as a a man who's trying to follow Catholicism as the light, like the star Bethlehem, right? We're here in the shadow of um, the the shadow of Easter, Easter, Christmas, and Epiphany. So there's a little analogy there to the star Bethlehem. Anyways, um, we, we at our little parish gave a, gave out a book um, to n not everyone, but a select group of uh, uh, special, shall we say, contributors, the ones who um, help around the most. You know, there's um, there there is um, there's a tradition growing within Catholicism of giving away free books at Christmas time, right? Matthew Kelly's books are popular for that. And they, they try to reach that general audience, especially those who you might say are the nuns. You might read a book from Matthew Kelly and give it to somebody who doesn't go to church. It's a beautiful thing, no doubt about it. We've done that too. But um, this year we tried to do a little something different by... Um, using a different caliber kind of book, um, something that's a little more intense, um, not necessarily geared toward the nun or the person who doesn't go to church or the person who's um, kind of um, just a pew, pew sitter. <laughs> they're in church, but they're a pew sitter. But geared more towards those who are um, more of the involved, more of the movers and shakers. You can... You can and you should get deeper. There's, as as a priest, as a pastor, I, I'm constantly aware of the different levels of of people that I deal with, um, everywhere from the 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 staff around me to the to the to the volunteers who do a lot to the pew sitters who are there. God bless them, but don't really do much um, and don't volunteer much and of course there's some who who give 
uh, good contributions, but are just too busy in their own lives, as it were, that they can't volunteer too much, but God bless them and that. And then there's those that are not in church and those who are, those who are, um, those who are not in church can be certainly described as um, either, well, I'd like to be Catholic, but they're, I'd like to practice, but I'm just too busy and I just have, um, um, it's just inconvenient and um, I'll get around to it when I can. Um, and then there's those who have sort of um, made a, a statement in their life or they've taken a stand not to go to church. You know, anyways, there's all these different levels of folks that, um, of course, we we deal with, and the church is made up of, and we have to love them all, right? And there's different ways of uh, showing love, and you have to call upon the Holy Spirit. Well, speaking of which, I got a, got a little message. One of my wonderful friends, Father Charlie Becker, sent me um, this little prayer he saw, and I, it touches me in a certain way, so I'm going to start with this. Um, it goes, don't know what the author is, but um, Father God, out of your great compassion and divine providence, place your hand of mercy upon everyone who hears this. See their need, dear God, and let your grace and favor flow like a river into their lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I like that because it focuses on something I constantly do. Actually, when I bless people, people ask for blessings all the time, see their need. We all have different needs, right? Um, and I, I often ask in a blessing, Lord, give the graces that this person needs at this time. And uh, it um, it just emphasizes the, f the fact that God would really only know the deepest needs. Many times our deepest needs are, are difficult to share, shall we say. Um, sometimes, our, well, sometimes our deepest needs are right out in the open, but um, other times they're not, right? So anyways, that's a beautiful little prayer. Okay, what I want to get to is the book that we passed out, and it is called The Popes Against Modern Air: 16 Papal Documents. It's uh, subtitled, Hard-Hitting Condemnations of Many of Today's Most Noxious Heirs. <laughs> so it's not an easy read, I'll just say it right there. And and actually, I, I need, as we introduce, if any any, any of you who are listening to this um, know the book, or if you're part of the gang that got the book, um, my first thing I'm going to say is, I'm, I have to apologize a little bit for suggesting it, because it is deep and it's rough to read in a certain it's, it, it's enlightening in the sense of um, uh, it, it certainly sh shows the need for good theology good catechesis but also it, for me it, it may be that when you listen to the popes from the 1800s and um, early in 1900s early 1900s like Pius X, um, he's in the early 1900s. Um, it could almost make you a liberal. <laughs> the reason I say that is because the language that they use and that some of the things that they attack in general are things that us modern American, even modern American Catholics sort of 
take for granted such things like freedom of speech, which we're battling for, um, and we're, we're, we're champions of freedom of speech, but it's, um, that's, a, that's an issue that uh, the church was pad- battling against, you know? Um, sort of like the um, uh, George Soros's and the uh, Zuckerbergs and all those who want to cancel freedom of speech and um, those that uh, are running universities that don't want certain people to come to campus because they're afraid that uh, their students will be offended by hearing something they don't agree with and everything. So there's a great push for freedom of speech in many circles. Um, And when you hear some of these documents from the 1800s, from the papal documents, you're going to hear... You're going to hear... words against freedom of speech, they're dealing with it and from the other perspective in a certain sense. Um, but it, it sounds bad. <laughs> and uh, also, um, what else comes up? The, there's two major words, um, modernism and liberalism. <laughs> those those two words are, are fighting words. Those are bad words when it comes to listening to some of the previous popes talk about the heirs of the day. But I got to say, off the, right off the bat, that I think we need to rehabilitate those words. The, when they were uttered 100 years ago, say, there's, there's the era, there's the spirit of modernism. As a matter of fact, um, many, uh, many references are made to the Modernism is a culmination, is a compilation of all the errors uh, in the past several centuries, maybe we could say. Um, it's, it's sort of the mother of all heresies. However, modernism as a word, as a title, I don't think catches it. I think it's, it's a challenge for us in the church today to help people follow the true star, follow the, find the truth and find the right sense of love of God and love of neighbor because the word modernism uh, for most people doesn't conjure up questions of moral doctrine, biblical disputes or uh, any, anything religious in a certain sense. Modernism for most people is like a word you'd use for, to describe the world of uh, modern inventions. Modernism has produced uh, modern medicine. It's produced uh, computers, and it's produced um, rocket ships and all sorts of things that we all love. <laughs> so the word modernism doesn't have a negative sting like like the like the church meant it to have. Um, and that's a problem, I'm afraid. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the wrong word to try to get people to think the right way. <laughs> um, but it is used a lot. Also liberalism, too. Liberalism, um, uh, for a lot of the popes of the past, was, was thrown out there as a heresy and saying, we can't, we can't embrace this liberalism. But liberalism... Has as a sort of um, uh, 
a pleasant sound for a lot of people because because being liberal means being in their minds it's associated with just being generous and tolerant liberalism is um when you you want to help the needy and you don't want to condemn people for anything <laughs> And so, therefore, even the word liberalism has to be... We, we, like I say, I think we need to sort of um, rehabilitate or find some new words to help people discover the, the full truth and find out the errors. I like the... Actually, I like the subtitle here of the book, um, uh, Hard-Hitting Condemnations of Many of the Most Noxious Errors. We all know it errors are, and if, if I'm erring, I want to know I'm erring, at least that should be a spirit of humility, right? The very fact that you might be erring <laughs> is um, uh, an evidence of someone's humble spirit, right? So, um, but of course, you know, people, there's a lot of people that won't want to be told they're error, erring in, in any way, shape, or form. So, anyways, okay, at the outset of my little show today, I, I got to share with you <laughs> something beautiful, interesting, marvelous that I have. I have a clip here from a Tim Pool cast. Um, Tim Pool is a young conservative guy who has um, his own um, podcast, and he's working with um, uh, another group called um, Turning Point, Charlie Kirk. Anyways, there was an interview. Um, Tim Pool's show had Tucker Carlson on, and he's a pretty big name. I think most, many of you will know who he is. Um, he's a guy that was on Fox News that got um, uh, fired from, or he quit Fox News. They, they weren't letting him um, uh, do his commentary the way he was becoming used to doing it. So they let him go, or he, they made him an offer he could refuse, <laughs> or he couldn't refuse, depending on how you look at it. Anyways, um, so what I, what I want to play for you is the end of that. It's almost a three-hour interview. It's a long, long interview to, um, to go through. But um, at the end of it, uh, we'll hear. Well, first of all, Tucker Carlson is with three other men: Charlie Kirk. James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe was the guy who was with um, the, that, that organization that was doing undercover f filming that broke the story of the um, uh, selling body parts at abortion clinics and what have you. Um, and he got removed from his organization, actually. Strange. Uh, so there's a little parallel there with Tucker Carlson. So um, Tim Pools, Charlie Kirk, and James... Um, um, well, let's see. James O'Keefe may not be. What I what I'm trying to say is there were three Chicagoans present. Beside Tim uh, Tim Pools, I didn't know, but he says in the interview that he's from the Chicagoland area. I don't I don't think he's living here anymore. I think he's out east, maybe maybe Georgia or something like that. Um, anyways, and Charlie Kirk is originally from Lamont, Illinois. And there's somebody from St. James, 
little parish by the name of Seamus Coughlin, and he's from the Chicago land area. Seamus, you might know as the um, the creator of Freedom Tunes, <laughs> a satirical, conservative, political um, cartoon um, podcast, you can call it, whatever. Um, anyways, so there's three Chicagoland people sitting around with Tucker Carlson, and I've got to play this little little clip at the end where Tucker Carlson, um, well, first Charlie Kirk is going to mention about how his um, uh, YouTube clicks or his, his videos on YouTube get censored, and then Tucker Carlson's going to come in, and he points over at Seamus Coughlin of... Uh, of Freedom Tunes fame, and you got to hear what he says. Um, goes, uh, let's see, goes like this. Let's see if I can get this to run. A bunch of people go to the channel, subscribe, and like some videos. It could spike our stuff up. Um, and uh, that's Charlie Kirk. It's also North Korean. It's just absolutely. And that's Tucker Carlson. <laughs> um, first, let me just say I'm I'm really psyched to meet you. I've wanted to. I'll see too. Thanks. Thanks. No, thank you. Um, and thank you for having me. This has been wild. And you're kind of bringing me a little bit closer. <laughs> I just, I love it. He points to Seamus Coughlin and says, you're kind of bringing me closer. Now, Charlie um, Tucker Carlson isn't Catholic. Seamus Coughlin is Catholic. And um, he's he's especially making that comment because a little bit earlier, Seamus mentions the problem that our acceptance of artificial contraception willy-nilly um, across the board um, has has caused our, in our society, when we talk about the difficulties in society, it's, it's sort of that, that moral issue that, that some people say is only a Catholic issue. But of course, us Catholics who believe in it don't believe it's just a Catholic issue. And as conservative as, as a Protestant commentator or philosopher, we'll call him, how about that, um, a conservative uh, Protestant, that, that's, that's one moral issue that you're not supposed to touch on. Since Seamus touched on it in that interview, I think that's part of what Tucker Carlson was referring to when he said, you're, here, let's back it up here again. Here, it goes like this. Me too, thanks. No, thank you. Um, and thank you for having me. This has been wild. And you're kind of bringing me a little bit closer. <laughs> no, just I love God that. Bless you. you know anybody? It's the Holy Spirit, not me. No, it's just that anybody who devotes his or her life to helping other people in the most unfashionable possible way, bringing onto themselves responsibilities they don't need, like that's the highest form of sincerity. So that's really that's a very winning. That's winning to me. Like I, I love that. Um, we started this new network. It's at TuckerCarlson.com. We think it's going to make a difference. Isn't that a precious um, compliment to, to Seamus? You're, you're taking on responsibilities that you don't need. That's uh, touching me, and uh, it's working, shall we say. So I'm going to just ask you to say a little prayer there for the great Tucker. Um, what if he became Catholic as well? I could, um, he'd be a, He'd be a great spokesman, especially, you know, I, these people that are being canceled for their conservative views, I think, can find a home in Catholicism if you find the right spirit of Catholicism that recognize that Catholicism itself is a religious, theological 
aspect of life that um, is trying to hold up and correct the errors of today or what have you. And that's, um, that's where we'll get into our 16 papal documents here. Anyways, let's take our first break. All right. Um, and we'll be back. First, we're going to get into Pope Gregory the Sixteenth. I'm sure we all have great memories of Pope Gregory the Sixteenth. Well, I didn't remember who he was until I did some research on him, and I'll share that with you, of course. But um, I'm uh, I'm I'm Father Tom Coyce. You're listening to the Winds of Change on AM 750. Father Thomas Loya invites you to an experience of a lifetime. Join him, along with Father Andrew Somerset and Laura Irachi, for a Byzantine Catholic retreat and pilgrimage to Guadalupe, Mexico, Saturday through Saturday, this April, the 20th through the 27th. In honor of Our Lady of Guadalupe, this retreat and pilgrimage to Guadalupe, Mexico, is designed to offer you an experience of culture and faith as well as moments for personal and community prayer in the Byzantine Catholic tradition. There you will be able to venerate the miraculous image of Our Lady's image on Blessed Juan Diego's Tilma. For complete information and to register for the Byzantine Catholic retreat and pilgrimage to Guadalupe, Mexico, Saturday through Saturday, this April 20th through the 27th, visit the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. I'm Father Tom Coyes, and you are listening to the Winds of Change. St. Stanislaus Koska, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy, is open 24 hours a day, seven days per week, for adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in the iconic monstrance. The Blessed Sacrament is reposed during the celebration of Mass and during special events. St. Stan's doors are always open for adoration. Come anytime day or night. St. Stan's is located two blocks north of Division on Noble, right off the Kennedy. Visit ststanschurch.org. Hey, hello everyone. God bless you for being with us here on this Brain Wrinkling Wednesday. Okay, in order um, to help us navigate through the times, it's good that religious folks like popes, make commentaries on what's going on. Now, this, um, this interesting book on 16 papal documents would, would tick a lot of people off, I'm afraid. And I'm almost a, it's, it's, gonna, it's a little bit of a risk to, um, to pass it out to people because it, as I mentioned earlier, I just mentioned, it has the potential of, turning someone who's sort of on the fence in the middle of the road Catholicism it has the ability to push them to the more liberal, more more um, um, modernist heirs. Why? Not, not because they're going to be convinced of, of the arguments, but they're going to have a bad taste in their mouth about the language that's being used. Here's a little example. <clears throat> and this comes from Gregory the Sixteenth. Um, he wrote this: "Hey, one year before St. James of Sagbridge was established here in the Greater Chicagoland area, St. James was established in 1833. 
Pope Gregory the 16th wrote this in 1832. It was the feast of the Assumption, August 15th. <laughs> Here's a little taste of um, his uh, uh, acidic tongue. <laughs> he says, In the meantime, we were again delayed in writing this encyclical because of the insolent and factious factuous men who endeavored to raise the standard of treason. Moreover, he goes on and says, we would have, we would have drowned, let's see, Bill Bank, you know the storms of evil and toil at the beginning of our pontificate. Well, I got to tell you about the storms and um, toil, because most of us don't know if we read this. And it's very important to know the storms and turmoil at the beginning of his pontificate in order to really appreciate. He says, um, they, they drove us suddenly into the depths of the sea. If the right hand of God had not given us strength, we would have drowned as a result of the terrible cons conspiracy of impious men. The mind recoils from renewing this grief by enumerating so many dangers. Instead, we bless the Father of Consolation, who have helped us overthrow all the enemies. Well, overthrow me, probably wrote this in a little bit of a uh, respite of the wars raging on in Europe. Um, we'll have to put that pieces together. But uh, the um, acidic language is all through some of these documents. And one thing that's a little frustrating for me, and I'm sure if you were to read this, um, when we do read encyclicals from times gone by, they, they, they're a little too ambiguous in the sense that they are, they say there's bad things going on, they say there's errors, but they, they're not as clear in, in explaining what the error is. It's kind of the frustration I have when, when I watch a good war movie. I think I've shared this idea before. And being a guy, I must confess, I enjoy a good war movie. Um, but one frustrating thing about it is, um, if the if the story is presented in such a way that I don't know what they're fighting for, I lose interest. If it's just explosions and battle scenes and people killing others and um, guns and planes and tanks and cannons and all that, it's all fascinating to a certain extent, but... I get bored with it rather quickly if I don't know who to root for, who, which side to be on. And I could just hear many of my, perhaps, um, detractors saying, you shouldn't be on either side. You should hate war. And of course I hate war, but I love history. And history is the, the, the stories of different wars. And so... Um, People wouldn't fight each other to the death if they weren't fighting for something they really, really believed in. Or at least the leaders of the country that are sending the soldiers to fight their fight. So it's so very important to know the causes of war. And if you can't, if you can't sort of say, um, uh, you know, uh, this is what we're fighting for, this is what's this is what is worth dying for, then maybe it isn't worth fighting. <laughs> um, so when you when you discover that 
or trivial reasons, then you have to then you have to say, "I'm against this war. This is a terrible thing, and it has to stop." You know, and so I think almost any war you could get to that point, but it's uh, it's certainly um, uh, it's, it's certainly a fact that people fight wars for reasons that are uh, at sometimes a very just cause or an unjust cause. Isn't, isn't that almost the basic definition of a war, right? So anyways, that's, um, uh, as I said earlier, too, the, um, the fighting words, too, especially that the popes are. We're going to start, as I, as I try to read some of these, we're going to start with Gregory the 15th, Sixteenth, uh, I'm sorry, Gregory the Sixteenth, um, and uh, the two words liberalism and modernism are thrown around as, as fighting words, as dirty words. But when we read them today, we we don't have a sense of what they're talking about really, um, because we sort of like living in the modern world and we sort of like being liberal <laughs> about different things. So um, we gotta understand what they're talking about. To give you a sense of where the church was, where the world was, where Europe was, back when Gregory the Sixteenth um, uh, reigned, uh, you have to remember that the um, early 1800s was when the Napoleonic Wars were, were waged. Napoleon... Um, the Battle of Waterloo was, I think, 1815, and Napoleon was trying to take over the known world, basically Europe. <laughs> and um, he he was the he's the one who kind of stepped in to save France from its own revolution. So so very one of the great ironies of all history is that the French Revolution was started after they got a whiff of the spirit of revolution from the American colonists trying to get rid of uh, the king of England over in the colonies and that, that spirit caught fire in Europe of course and uh, so the French Revolution wanted to um, do away with the monarchy and so they waged the French Revolution. French Revolution got way out of hand and um, uh, you know who had to come in to save him wasn't a guy named Napoleon, and he he's he's settled the problem by becoming an emperor. <laughs> so to get rid of the monarch, they um, had to resort to an emperor. <laughs> it's just irony of ironies, isn't it? Um, anyways, here I got to read. Um, here's uh, again from my favorite history books um, called Warren Carroll. This is from the History of Christendom, Volume Five. And um, so this is the world into which Pope Gregory the Sixteenth um, came, and it gives you a sense of why he was using such acidic language, um, telling telling people they were fools and uh, uh, heretics right off the bat, without even explaining why they were foolish or what their heresy was. But he goes. Uh, but here's here's the here's the little description. But by the uh, the end had come for the Napoleonic Empire. In human terms, its devastation was not to find its equal until the totalitarian regimes of Hitler and Stalin in the 20th century Europe. 
with their million-fold holocausts. So here's a quote from um, the birth of modern of the modern world society by Paul Johnson. He's a great author too. There's a okay. Over two million people had died as a direct consequence of Bonaparte's campaigns. Two million people died um, through those Napoleonic wars. Many more through poverty and disease and undernourishment. Countless villages had been burned in the paths of the advancing and retreating armies. Almost every capital in Europe had been occupied. Some like Vienna, Dresden, Berlin, and Madrid more than once. Moscow had been put to the torch. Copenhagen had been bombarded. The wars had set back the economic life of Europe for a generation. They made men behave like beasts and worse. Throughout Europe, the standards of moral conduct declined as men and women and their growing children learned to live brutally. Isn't that a great description? <laughs> um, so, uh, in the United States, us Americans were experiencing pretty much a more peaceful world over this way. This is the this is the time when the great Hudson River School artists were painting the beautiful pictures of nature that I love so much, and maybe maybe you know what I'm talking about. The great um, masterpieces of uh, mountain scenes, sunsets, uh, ships on the on the sea, um, with their sails. Uh, filled with uh, sunlight and what have you. Anyways, just beautiful. Um, Catholics were such a minority in those days in the United States, but, and, and there were a number of problems with that us Catholics had, but um, that the baby America as a, as a Protestant church was enjoying a bit of a honeymoon, as it were. Uh, that honeymoon, I'm afraid, is gone, and I, I pray that uh, my Protestant brothers and sisters would will join me in trying to see some of the nascent heirs of our time. If we, if we learn a bit from the, the papal teachings about heirs, and they're, they're talking obviously worldwide, but they're especially look, they're, the Pope's world was basically Europe, right? So anyways, that's it. Oh my gosh, we're at the bottom of the hour already. So I've got to give you a little more background um, of the time of Gregory the Sixteenth, because this flows from then we get to other popes like Pope Leo the Thirteenth and Pius the Ninth and Pius the Tenth. These are other probably more famous ones, but I think it's good for us to get a, a good grasp of what was going on in the early 1800s before we get to the mid 1800s and 1900s, as it were, to really have an appreciation for for where the church is today and and what we what we need. Okay, so let's take our second break here. I'm Father Tom Coys and you are listening to the Winds of Change. This is Catholic Schools Week, where in Catholic schools, where your child will learn faith, excellence, and service, where it is possible your child can take advantage of the excellence that is St. Stanislaus Koska Academy. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy. St. Stan's is an exceptional private elementary school in Chicago, serving preschool, age three and four, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, and first grades. 
We incorporate Catholic values and rigorous academic social-emotional learning, Chinese, Spanish, STEM, and more, providing our students with leadership and life skills to transform our world. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy is conveniently located one block north of Division on Noble, just off the Kennedy Expressway. To schedule your tour, visit ststanschicago.org. ststanschicago.org. We are the students of St. Stanislaus Koska Academy. Your children can join them for face-to-face classroom instruction. Visit ststanschicago.org. To find out how. And you're listening to the Winds of Change. Sometimes it's tough to hear winds of change over the air. What with tall buildings, power lines, and other static. Now you can hear winds of change anywhere, anytime, or on any device. When winds of change is on the air, live, Monday through Friday, noon to one, go to ststandschurch.org. Scroll down to the Winds of Change tile and click on the Listen Live button. For Winds of Change podcasts, click on Listen to Episodes or visit the Winds of Change Facebook page. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Father Tom Coyce here. You're on on the Winds of Change. Okay, get your mind back into the early 1800s in order to help us understand what the 1900s and now the 2000s are all about. These are things that have, uh, even some of the visionaries that we read about and a lot of us like to plug into and listen to, um, refer back to these days. And it's it's good for us to see um, what's going on. So um, uh, in, in, a, in a nutshell, I'm going to say that what, what part of what's going on is the church, through these popes, was seeing a great divorce about to happen. And I don't mean a divorce between this person and that person, although that certainly happened a lot, (laughs) but a great divide, a great separation between the church and the state. And, And that impending separation, that impending divorce was was appreciated by the popes as not a good thing. Things are not going to come out well. And they're so right. Um, But today, we take the separation of church and state so much for granted, we we have a hard time appreciating the anger or the worry or the um, real negative words for what was going on in those days. because it's the the popes in those days were accused of papal authoritarianism, <laughs> and nobody likes authoritarianism today. That's a, <laughs> ironically, that's actually why some of the people today are are worried or not so happy with Pope Francis, our present pope, um, who who seems to act on authoritarian ways. Um, and so we have this um, little negative attitude about papal authoritarianism. But these posts were arguing for papal authoritarianism, partly because 
they were fighting for a place at the table, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from from uh, community organizers, right? And what I mean by that is that the church, the ecclesial authorities always had, pretty much had a place at the table in civil affairs, civic affairs, secular affairs. But the secular rulers were trying to strip the church of all its involvement, as it were. So um, that's uh, a very important aspect of um, appreciating what, well, first we'll, we'll tackle um, Gregory the Sixteenth here. His document is called Mirari Vos. And it usually, if you know the, 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 the titles of papal encyclicals, I think this is kind of a crazy little thing, but it's taken from the first sentence usually of, of what the what the encyclical starts off with. First sentence says, I think that you wonder why. From the time of our assuming the pontificate, we have not yet sent a letter to you as is customary, <laughs> or as our as our benevolence for you demand. And so in other words, the opening of the encyclical has nothing really to do with what he's going to write about, but he's just saying, sorry, I haven't written to you yet. I've been a little preoccupied. Um, so let's get a little bit of his preoccupation. Um, okay, so he was, um, he was pope for 15 years. Gregory XVI was uh, known as Cardinal Capi Capillari. And he was also an abbot for a while. He was known as Abbot Mauro. Um, so let's see. He, he actually, um, as I said, he, was, um, he wrote the document in the book that we're looking at um, in 1832, which was a bit of a respite years. He dies in 1846. <laughs> Um, 14, 12 years later, and he's, he dies in exile because Napoleon captures him. <laughs> um, um, well, let's see, he was, um, well, he was, he was captured back in 1798 um, before he was pope as a, as a younger uh, person. Anyways, he dies in 1846, so um, there's all this turmoil going on. Um, so, and before... This is important here. Before Gregory the Sixteenth, there was the previous pope was Pope Pius the Seventh. So Pope Pius the Seventh, he was Pope. Um, uh, let's see, well, there's a couple of popes before Gregory the Sixteenth. Anyways, Pius the Seventh, he's important because he was kidnapped and and exiled, put in prison by Napoleon. Um, as Napoleon was beginning his uh, his revolution to the revolution, the counter-revolution to the French Revolution, um, his his ascendancy to uh, the, the the title of emperor. It's kind of funny that uh, when at the end of uh, Napoleon's life, when he was exiled onto his little island, uh, Saint Helen. Um, <laughs> they they allowed him to keep the title of emperor, but of course, he was only, he wasn't allowed to leave the island, so he was just emperor of his little island, <laughs> with very few people to to be emperor over, and no army to command, as it were. Anyways, so um, uh, Pius the Pius the seventh, um, he doesn't he does he was exiled. 
but he does come back to Rome after Napoleon um, falls at that Battle of Waterloo. Waterloo, remember the Abbot, uh, Abba song? Um, so um, that's, it's, it's hard for us to imagine um, popes being arrested and sent into exile. And um, that's what's going on. And so that's why some of the popes, when they put pen to paper, they, they weren't going to mess around and try to be too polite, as it were. Um, uh, Gregory the Sixteenth. here, let's go on a little bit farther. Um, so we, we, we have a Pope, we have Pope Leo the Twelfth, who was before Gregory the Sixteenth. He makes Abbot Mauro, who's the future Gregory the Sixteenth. He was abbot of a very big uh, monastery in Italy. He makes him a secret cardinal, cardinal and pectorate, as I think they say. That was in 1823. Um, so he's now cardinal, and that means he might he might be able to vote if he gets a chance. He had to make him a secret cardinal because Pope Leo XII knew that um, uh, the cardinals were especially the enemies of people like Napoleon and other such ne'er-do-wells. Uh, so um, uh, it's better to be a secret pope than a public pope. <laughs> you don't get arrested or put in prison as, as quickly. Okay, so then the, then there's um, uh, Pius VIII. We just had Pius VII. Pius VIII follows Leo XII, but he only is a pope for one year. It says that um, in the history book I saw, that he just died of exhaustion from the turmoil going on in Europe. He just was, uh, couldn't take it, died of a heart attack or something. Anyway, so that's, um, that's when Gregory XVI comes in. So when Gregory XVI comes in, not only it's a little bit after the, the Napoleonic Wars, which ripped apart Europe, now, now Italy gets the um, patriotic bug to create a nation. This is so important for us as Americans, my friends, because um, as Americans, we we think of our nation as an early, as a young nation compared to the nations of Europe. But actually, a lot of the nations of Europe are younger than the United States. It was the United States that came up with the idea of a nation, and then all the European countries followed because what was going? There were no nations in Europe. There were there were kingdoms because there were kings. And when the United States said, we don't need no king, we'll, we'll make a republic, um, we'll start a nation, and we'll use the format of a republic, and, and these other nations said, hey, it's a good idea. France and um, Italy followed suit. So um, as Gregory XVI comes to um, his, uh, take his papal throne, um, it is the national, the Italian national revolution begins. So, it's so so sad, but it's all the same thing when you read these chapters of history. Cardinals were captured, bishops were imprisoned, um, especially in the papal states, um, and a town militia, we'll call them that, would have to battle the papal army. You say what? The papal army? What's what's that? Pope doing with an army. That was part of the world of the day. Um, the Pope had um, an army because he had the Papal States and he had um, 
there was this there was this little part of the world known as the Papal States, mostly central and northern Italy, um, that belonged to the Pope. That's where he he um, he had control over the mayors, and uh, it was it was. Um, it's kind of like the Catholic version of the Church of England, if you want to call it something like that, because uh, in England, uh, except um, except in England, it was the civil leader, namely the king, that had control of the church. And with the Catholic version going on in Italy, it was the religious leader called the Pope that had control of the municipalities and all the rest. So this is what I'm... So I want to focus your attention on on what is lost today. This is this is the key factor, my friends. What is lost today is this marriage, this partnership between church and state. Um, we take it so much for granted that um, uh, the church and the state should be uh, so separate that we keep that divorce. We keep that divorce. Um, um, applied, shall we say. No reconciliation here. We don't want any reconciliation going on. You know, like when husband and wife are separated, and you might try a while to reconcile and figure out how to live together again. Um, and of course, a lot of times it's no way Jose. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. Also, there's not only a divorce or a division, a separation between church and state, but what was going on on a philosophical level was this divorce between the body and soul. I think that's another good way to appreciate this, uh, the separation of body and soul. Um, in the modern world, um, it, it was kind of um, what was repeated often by the enemies of Catholicism, the enemies both Protestant and, and just atheistic, is that... Um, uh, the church was allowed a certain authority over spiritual matters, but must be stripped of its temporal authority. Now that, on the surface, meant you can't rule. Um, you don't want to put priests and bishops as mayors and um, judges of court systems. So we're going to strip you of that kind of temporal authority. Um, and and so the Pope was fighting that because he saw, okay, if there's not a partnership, if you, then the only the only option is going to be we're going to be slaves or we're going to be under the thumb of the civil authorities. And the civil authorities often were rich folks that lived immoral lives, and they they sensed that problem, and so. Um, we have to sense it too, Cardinal Cardinal George. I, I he often used to say, um, the only thing we have today are words. Right? We we have to do our convincing with good arguments, with with good speeches, with good reasoning, explaining and pointing out what's right and what's wrong. In other words, all we have is the task of forming people's conscience. Well, see, the church before had a little more than that. We, we, if we couldn't form their conscience in the right way, we, the church was able to put them in jail <laughs> or send in an army to do away with um, a whole movement, as it were. 
one way or another. Okay, let's take our third break here, all right? Um, and I'll see if we can sort of wrap up, um, but I'm only scratching the surface, of course. Anywho, um, I'm Father Tom Coyce on the Winds of Change on AM 750. Sometimes it's tough to hear winds of change over the air. What with tall buildings, power lines, and other static. Now you can hear winds of change anywhere, anytime, or on any device. When winds of change is on the air, live, Monday through Friday, noon to one, go to ststandschurch.org. Scroll down to the winds of change tile and click on the listen live button. For winds of change podcasts, Click on Listen to Episodes or visit the Winds of Change Facebook page. I'm Father Tom Coyce, and you are listening to the Winds of Change. How long has it been since you have been to church? Busy schedule? Work? Or just lost interest? To be Catholic is not just merely attending Mass as just another weekend activity to be checked off the to-do list. Participation in the sacred liturgy gives you the opportunity to be intimately connected to Christ through the Holy Eucharist. You can also cleanse yourself of sin through the Sacrament of Reconciliation as a baptized Catholic. Come before the iconic monstrance to be in Christ's presence in the sacred silence of the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy. St. Stanislaus Koska Church is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. St. Stan's is just off the Kennedy, two blocks north of Division on Noble. Come back to Christ through the sacred liturgy and his gift of the sacraments at St. Stan's. Hey, welcome back to the Winds of Change. I'm Father Tom Coyce, trying to get our head around. What I'm really trying to do, my friends, is, is um, encourage you to, to study theology and philosophy and history to help us know how to navigate and solve today's problems, the difficulties of today's problems. Um, and as as we in the, sitting in the modern world look at some of the debates that were going on, as I said, the the the, the reformers were asking for uh, freedom of speech, and they were asking for um, uh, greater greater participation in in um, in the matters of the local government, it, not even what was going on in the, the mass, shall we say, or, or what the schools were, if there were schools, um, but what was what was going on in their town. And if they had a priest or a bishop who was running the town, shall we say, and many times the bishops didn't live in the town, there, there were legitimate complaints that um, the temporal issues weren't being taken care of. Um, so um, when, we, when we think about the reforms that were going on and we tend to applaud a number of the reforms that they were, they were asking the church to do, um, which today we take for granted, and, and back in those days the Pope was fighting against. There's, there's two aspects, and this, this is the key factor, I think. Um, there's two aspects of reform, one being, shall we say, just political structures that need reform, versus moral principles that need reform or doctrines about God and Christ um, and sacraments that that need reform now the 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 reform that 
the reformers were hoping for with the moral principles were not so good because that was basically just let us live the way we want. Take away, uh, we don't want someone telling us what is right and wrong, especially regarding um, sexual morality and marriage issues. Stay out of that realm, um, Pope <laughs> and priest and all the rest. Um, and so the, the popes were, I think we could, we have to be able to see more clearly today that they were right in warning the world that if you remove a religious, a religious conscience formed on the Ten Commandments, shall we say, let's say it, all right, I will say it, conscience formed on the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes um, and many other wonderful teachings of our faith, especially we have the, the, the modern teachings of, uh, of uh, uh, well, human sexuality in terms of uh, artificial contraception and uh, um, the, the, the nature of marriage between a man and a woman, right? These things didn't, didn't pop up in years gone by, but they're certainly front and center today. So um, the Pope was, was worried about uh, um, turning over too much authority to those people who had bad moral compasses. Their, their lives and their record indicated that. Um, so as I said before the break, Cardinal George used to say, well, today all we have is, is words. All we have is arguments. Um, and to some extent, he's right in the sense of the church speaking to society. Um, but when the church speaks to its own, it has a little bit more than just words, um, as we're seeing today, because a bishop or a cardinal has the authority to remove um, its workers, namely its, its priests or other um, employees, as it were, there is that aspect of the temporal order of things. Oh, my goodness. That means the hours come to an end. But I, I hope I wrinkled your brain a bit. We'll come back to this eventually. I'm Father Tom Coyes. You've been listening to The Winds of Change. We are AM 750.